Thank you for tuning in to listen to this sermon from the Ville Church. To find out more about us and our weekly scheduled services, please visit theville.church. Glad you're here and excited to dive in today. You know, um, we're in this series. It's called Something Different. There's got to be more to life. And we've been doing it all summer, basically. Um, and today, back it up, back it up. Uh, today, we're going to be looking into the letter of Colossians. Has anyone ever heard of Colossians, read Colossians? We got any Colossians out there? All right, all right. Um, <clears throat> so this letter, it's basically um, from our people's champion, the Christian's people's champion, Paul. He wrote this letter uh, during one of the many times he was imprisoned. And he, he gets imprisoned all the time for this weird thing that he does. He proclaims Jesus as Lord. And people are like, you got to stop. And he doesn't. And then they throw him in jail. Um, and this letter specifically, he wrote to people he has never met and to a church he did not even start. Um, kind of like us, right? He's never met us, and he definitely didn't start this church. Technically, I guess if you go all the way back, maybe people, 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 people to us. But he's never met us, and he doesn't know us. Um, but this is a church in Colossus that was started actually by one of Paul's homeboys, colleagues, protégés, and his name was Epaphras. And Epaphras decided to visit Paul when he was in jail. Okay, so he went to Paul, and he was just telling him how well things were going in this church. Um, that in this very difficult, pagan, cult-like uh, culture, people were embracing Jesus as a new way to live. Um, but Epaphras also was sharing that there's cultural pressures um, that were tempting people to turn back away from Jesus and go back to their former lives. Um, and there's, I mean, there's a hodgepodge of different things going on. So there was Greek philosophies and Jewish dietary laws and circumcision laws. And there was this Eastern mysticism happening where there were like secret signs that you do to show that you're actually saved in salvation. And there's these ancient, ancient traditions that their forefathers did that if you became a Christian, you didn't do anymore, but they were saying, hey, no, you got to come back into our traditions. Um, and they're all challenging God's people in Colossians to, to turn away. So after Paul hears this in jail, the report from his friend, uh, he, he writes this letter. And it, it's a letter to challenge some of these cultural pressures that they're dealing with and to challenge Christians to an even greater devotion to Jesus as Lord in the midst of it. Um, and this, this letter is actually very relevant to us now today. Uh, when we become Christians, we take a defiant step away from ourselves and a defiant step towards uh, Jesus Christ as Lord over our lives. So we're moving away from ourselves and this world and what it has to offer and towards Jesus as our Lord. And for most of the series, the tagline, there's got to be more to life than this, um, I've thought through the lens of non-believers and new believers. Um, but today, I actually want to speak to the people in this room, that those of us in here that are road-traveled Christians, people that have been doing it for a little bit now and who have been on this journey for a little while. Um, <clears throat> and even those of us who have been walking with the Lord for a good amount of time, 
uh, we still ask these questions. There's got to be more to life than this, right, God? Like, I need something different because we hit these roadblocks all the time, these dry spots, and we just come to an end of ourselves, even as Christians, saying, please, there's got to be something more. Um, And I believe those times happen when we actually lose sight of God and his divine will for our life, and we allow ourselves to be deluded and confused by the cultural pressure that's happening all around us. You see it all the time in the Old Testament. God's people is this, this, they have their land, they have their customs, but then surrounding them are all these pagan countries. And after time, they kind of mix in together. And it's hard to separate who's the God of Abraham and who's Balel or whoever these pagan gods were and what are we worshiping. And it gets diluted and it gets confusing. Um, and that still happens to Christians today. So this letter is for us. It's for faithful believers in a new church uh, that Paul didn't know and that Paul didn't start. Um, and I just want to say, we've seen God do amazing things here over the past five years. Can I get an amen to that? God has done amazing things through his people here in this church, in this small vicinity, in the whole world. And we get to testify to that and just give God glory that he's done so many things inside the people of this room and also people outside in the city. And um, so we can testify to the Lord's provision. We can testify to this movement and his growth uh, in the people here for the past five years. But at the same time, we can't forget that we need to encourage each other. We have to encourage and uplift one another in this very difficult, pagan, cult-like culture that, that it tempts us to look everywhere uh, for hope and joy uh, outside of Jesus. And it, and it wants to reject God's truths and lead us away from Jesus. That's all the culture around us wants to do that. Um, whether it's the atheist philosophies, the Republican democratic ideologies, um, these consumer materialistic pressures that you got to have more, you got to be this to actually live. If you don't have it, it's not even worth living. Um, this, this, like, our historical, systematically oppressive past that has got us to this point, um, the glorification of ourselves on social media, can I get an amen, uh, that we just want to be heard, listen to my voice, my voice is more important to yours, so i got to make it known, um, our, our sex-saturated, pornified culture, I like that word pornified, I made it up, but it's true, this is our culture just look around on anything, and it's selling sex, and it's selling the pornification of our culture. Um, and even, even the domineering mass market entertainment machine that just wants to bring our attention away from Jesus and towards something else. And we're all in this culture. We're all in this culture. So my prayer f- for today is this. You know, I want to say, God, please allow your servant, Paul's words, to challenge us to a greater devotion to Jesus, your son, in the face of our culture. That's, that's what we want to do today. That's the point of this sermon today. So I'm going to read what we're going to go through, and then we'll pray and get started. So we're in First Colossians. Well, that's not true. Colossians 1. Uh, the one and only Colossians is what we're in. So don't go to the second one, and if you have a second one, give me your Bible, I'm throwing it away. Um, So Colossians 1, 9 through 14. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, 
we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing good fruit in every good work, or bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the sunny loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord, at the beginning of letters, I, I tend to just gloss over uh, what is said. And I, I try and get to the meat of what's happening. But there are powerful, powerful truths that Paul packs in a very short spot uh, for us to know. And, and today, I ask that you, you help me break it down in a way that's, that's true, in a way that people in this room can understand that, that your truths go out and they don't fall on deaf ears, that we embrace them and we're encouraged by them and it pushes us to a greater devotion of you when we walk out of the room. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so we're gonna start with verse nine. <clears throat> for this reason, so I'll, actually I'll stop right there. Um, for this reason, in verses, I think three through eight, remember, uh, Epaphras has told Paul that things are going really well in this church. Lots of people becoming Christians. Christians are helping other Christians and other people in the city. And it's just, it's going really well. So after he says that for like five verses, Paul's like saying, wow, this is great. We're, we're so thankful that God's doing this among you. Um, and just to hear that report, it encourages me while I'm sitting here rotting in a jail cell, knowing that the gospel is still going forth and still being proclaimed and still producing good fruit throughout the ends of the earth. Um, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. The first thing to me that is different about this passage is that Paul hears that they're doing well and then decides to nonstop pray for them. Um, and that's, that's odd to me. It, it, it convicts me instantly because my prayers, what I pray about, at least my, my repeated intentional prayers, they're reserved for crisis situations only, right? And not only crisis situations, but mostly my crisis situations, not even other people's. And so when, when I go in and continually pray for something, I normally don't think about when things are going well that I'm going to continually now not stop praying for you. It's, it's an interesting thing. Um, but the initial success of the gospel in this foreign land, it doesn't, it doesn't lull these people asleep and say, we're going to slack in our prayers now and we're going to back off because good things are happening. And this actually makes perfect sense if you think about it. If, if we witness the gospel winning and we witness it succeeding, we should step up our prayers and step up our efforts 
all the more, right? And like an example, I think about this when I was thinking through this text, it's like in Haiti, I used to live in Haiti, when someone comes and drills a well in, in an area where they don't have access to clean water, and then people come from all over because they're so excited that there's water there. I mean, why would we just sit back and be like, wow, we did something great. God's doing something. Cool. And that's it. We, we would probably more likely be like, how far did you come to get this water? Five miles? Where do you live? Let's drill a well there. Let's keep going. Let's step up the efforts. Let's keep asking God to do amazing things because we're seeing the fruit of the gospel happening. Um, so, yeah, like with our church, when we see fruit, when we see people getting baptized, when we see people coming to Christ, when we see people actually clinging to Jesus in situations where they used to cling to their own flesh or addictions or other things, man, that should make us so excited and motivated to keep going, to do more and see more because we want more goodness to be happening, right? So we can pray for, we can pray for more fruit. We can pray that it continues to move forward. You know, like, let the good times roll. Let's go. Let's do this. Let's see it happen. Um, and we know that it's good to pray for more, but, but what are we actually praying more of? What, what is the specific thing that he's praying for here? For God to fill us with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Now, that is a powerful prayer. If someone was up here praying those exact words, I'd be like, that's a prayer master right there. He, uh, that's, that's deep. That's a lot of things. I have to take some time to even think about what he's saying, right? Um, to fill us with the knowledge of your will. How in the world do we know what the will of God is? Right? Uh, a FAQ, frequently asked question of any pastor what is God's will for my life? This is the, one of the most common questions that's set. Like, we're always thinking through, like, God, what is your will for me? I want to follow you, but what is your will? I need to know what you want. Like, what are you doing? What's your will? Um, and it's a huge question for our American Christian culture. We, specifically, American Christians, ask this question, like, God, show me your will, and I'll do it. As long as I know, I'll do it. Um, I'm just trying to figure out your will for my life, and then once I know, then I'll do it. Trust me, I'm good for it. Um, what is God's will, though? What is his will? Well, at its most basic, at its most basic, the will of God is to repent of our sins and trust in Christ. That is the number one most basic foundational thing, the first thing you do. You, you repent of your sins, and then you, so you, Repent and turn away from your sins and then trust and go to Christ. Then when we receive Christ by faith, we are made children of God. And our Father's desire is to lead us in his way. Um, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. The, the, the problem of this is we want God to give us specifics, Right? It's like, God, where should I work? What should I do? Um, which house should I buy? Please make it very clear to me which house. Who do you want me to marry? 
Just show me. Give me a vision of their face and let me actually meet them tomorrow when I wake up. They're just in my room. I will propose right then. You know, who do you want me to marry? Um, should, I, should I sell all my possessions and move to China? Is that your will for me? Or is that just something I'm feeling because it sounds cool and adventurous? Like, what, what do you want from me? Um, do you want me to open up my house for this specific person to come live in my house because they don't have a place? Is that, is that what your will for me is? Or am I kind of going outside your will, inviting them in? Um, should, I, should I punch this person in the face? So on and so on. There's a lot of questions we ask God to show us his will. Um, but the cool thing is, is God allows us to make choices, right? God allows humanity to make our own choices. It's one of the beautiful freedoms we have been gifted by him, by God. Uh, it's this ability to choose what to do. And when we walk closely with God, the, and we truly desire his will for our lives, God actually moves and gives us new desires that we can follow to lead into his will. All right? So God actively places desires in our hearts. God puts them there. It's not our desires. We have desires. But when we come in Christ, that the spirit is moving, that we get new desires to follow into the will, what he wants for us of God. And so... <clears throat> the underlying issue is not what is God's will. It's, it's actually more of, do you want to follow God's will? Do you desire to follow God's will? Are you willing to let go of your will? That's the baseline question. Um, so that's why the first step with everything, like I said, is repent of seeking your own will, of seeking what you think is good for you, and then actually believe that God has revealed his will for you in Jesus Christ and in the gift of the Holy Spirit that is presently inside of you. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is a very famous verse. Here's what it's not saying. God is not your genie. Okay? Because some of us read this, we're like, okay, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you desires of your heart. I have desires, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to delight myself in God, be like, hey, I did it, now can I have my desires? Because that's how we think. We think, ah, oh, man, I want to do this, this, and this, so maybe if I delight myself in the Lord, he will grant me my desires as my genie. But that's not actually what this is saying. It's saying when you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart, meaning he will give you new desires. So as you're delighting yourself in God and who he is, new desires will come up and emerge. And those new desires are of the father who protects you. You know, like um, I had a house party one time here and we had this question that we just posed. We're saying if the father has a house, right, and he, he brings you into the house as an orphan and he accepts you as a child, are there any rules of the house? Are there any rules of the house? And it's interesting how people respond to that. Because we had a, a whole buffet of different responses to that question. And the thing is, if he is our father, and specifically parents know what I'm talking about, you know better what's for your child than they know for themselves. So their desires a lot of time 
aren't great desires. So part of what we do as parents is we encourage and show and present the truth to our children so they have new desires of good things, of of pleasant things, of holy things, of righteous things, of pleasing things. And so part of God the Father, not God the genie, he doesn't just give his child everything he wants because literally all hell would break loose. But luckily our Father loves us enough to discipline us and withhold the desires of our heart and give us new desires. So who are those that have spiritual wisdom and understanding? Because it said um, the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Who are these people? Who are the people that we know as Christians that we would say, you have spiritual wisdom and understanding? It's, it's those who think, who decide, and who act from God's perspective, not their own. If they have a, a vision of saying, I'm laying my life down, and I'm going to think through the lens of God on this, how I think, how I act, how I decide to do things, that is spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. So the goal, the goal of being filled with the knowledge of God is this. It's in the next verse. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Our calling, his will for our life is to please him. Our calling, his will for our life here on earth right now as Christians is to please him. Is to please him. Um, Our desire should be to please God in every possible way, in every possible decision, in the scope of life's activities. We don't do that naturally. We can't do that because we only want to please ourselves. But when we understand the foundational truth of the gospel, it actually changes us to want to please him and actually love each other and love creation. So, um, so when I say, I just want you to see this, please him in every way, not just spiritual ways, not just church activity ways, but in all things, it's possible to please God our Father. Um, and if you're like me, a lot of times we are lost. We're at a loss of what to do. What does that look like? Because that's, that's very general, right? But God's never at a loss. God gives answers in his holy scriptures, and he gives the spirit to testify it to us through fellow believers. Um, So Paul, he's praying, he said, that we will please God in every way, very general. Paul, what does that mean? How does that actually happen? How do we please God? Well, luckily, Paul keeps talking and gives us four specific ways that are crucial to pleasing God. He, He lists them, four different ways. Bearing fruit in every good work. Growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father. Here are the four traits. You know, I'm not really for a lot of times uh, pointed sermons, but I'm doing it. I'm going there. We're going to do four spiritual traits. And it's funny because I met with some of my girls uh, last Saturday and they said, hey, if you ever give a sermon about four ways to be a better Christian, that's not cool. Well, 
technically this isn't what I'm talking about. But this is four ways to, these are four things that Paul in scripture tells us. He's telling us four ways that we can actually please our father. Because we want to please our father. If we know his abundant love for us and his sacrifice for us, Lord, how do I, how do I please you? How do I give my life to you? What does that look like? Here we go. One, bearing fruit in every good work. Uh-oh. It's the dreaded word, work. Whenever we see work, most of us, we get the heebie-jeebies. We're like, work, legalism, no, out, cut it out. That's not scripture. Cut that, cut that part out. Okay, how can you please God? Here's one way. By doing good, righteous, holy things as God defines them. As God defines them, not as we define them. So whenever people hear something like this, bearing fruit in every good work, they go to one or two extremes, okay? So instantly, probably people in this room went to one or two extremes. Uh, first, they either accumulate this long list, right, a, a very long list of good things that they have done or good things they're currently working on doing to make themselves feel worthy before God, like, hey, I'm good, right, God? I've done enough. I've done enough. I, I do a lot of good things, uh, so we're good, correct? Um, or they brush it aside uh, because, you know, uh, grace and love and uh, mercy rule. So working, that's not important. The, what we do is not important. It's love, grace, and mercy that's the important thing, and what you do doesn't matter anymore. So we're not saved by works, but we were created for them. And this is a very important thing to note. So the first people is what you do does not put you in a, a good standing with God. Jesus is our only standing before God. If you're in Christ, that is the only thing that actually puts us in good standing with God. But at the same time, God did not create us to, to do nothing. He's given us purpose and he's given us things to do that are good and righteous and holy. He created us to fulfill the things he wants us to do. For we're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And the thing is, when we fulfill what God has intended us to do, when, when we come into the thing that God has already planned in advance for us to do, that pleases God. He's pleased to see that you're stepping in faith to do these things he's created specifically for our good to do. And what we believe matters, obviously. But what we do also matters. It matters. And this is a big point. Like our test of faith is whether it makes any different, any difference in the way we live and the way we treat others. Because we can talk a big game. Look at Facebook. You can talk a big game. But how do you live and how do you actually treat others, right? That is also vitally important, not just what the truth is, but the truth should manifest itself if it's actually true and you're clinging to it as true into how you function. And the gospel truth can't help, it cannot be separated from changing the way we exist and what we do. Does your profession 
match your confession? I heard that a preacher say that, and I thought it was pretty good. Does your profession match your confession? We talk big game, but at the end of the day, do our actions actually line up to what we say we believe? Um, <clears throat> amen. I know what you're feeling. All right. That's number one. Bearing good fruit and every good work. Number two, growing in knowledge of God. Um, sin is a vicious cycle, right? Sin begets more, or begets more sin and more sin. It's this vicious cycle plunging us deeper and deeper into shame, guilt, remorse, isolation. It's a terrible, terrible thing. The knowledge of God is a virtuous cycle that, that leads us deeper and deeper into awe and wonder, love, forgiveness, acceptance. So when we seek to know God more through his scriptures, through his son, God incarnate, through his creation, uh, it pleases God because we're seeking to know the creator. We're coming to him. We want to know him. God, show it. It's like our hearts are open to that. We're not rejecting him anymore. And it pleases God. He's with open arms waiting for us and will embrace us when we, we're growing and keep coming into the knowledge of the Lord. Because God is infinite. We know that, right? God is apparently everlasting and forever. So he's given us the ability to constantly grow in the knowledge of who he is because he's infinite. Um, there's always more to know and more to marvel at with who this God is. Um, Paul says that spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity is less about what you do and, and reveals itself with an unending desire to know God through Christ and his suffering. Spiritual maturity is the constant going towards knowing God more, that we haven't arrived, that we haven't made it, that there's so much more depth of who God is. When I became a Christian, I saw Christianity and God and all this as, as like a little stream. It's like, okay, this is great. I'm trying to get the ins and out, how it functions, whatever. And the more I saw it, the more it, it just opened up, the vastness of it. And then it was like a river. And I was like, well, okay, this is a lot bigger. There's streams on the side. Okay, cool. I went to seminary. It's an ocean. Uh, you can easily get lost. You can spend your whole life looking at who God is. People, when I was in seminary, this guy spent 30 years, 30 years of his life to write one book, and it was a commentary on Romans. 30 years of his life for one book in the Bible, and guess what? It didn't say everything that needs to be said. It's crazy. There's so much to know about who this God is. Um, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. It's so crucial to grow in knowledge, not because we have to, but because we live in an age that prizes everything but knowing God. It's so crucial to know we, everything's going to warp, twist who God is. And unless we're growing ourselves and knowing who he is, who scripture says he is, who Jesus says he is, who creation claims him to be, then it's very easy to get sucked in to all these other narratives and all these other thoughts. Um, now, now, here's the rub. We don't possess the power in and of ourselves to do this. Knowledge does not enable us to be obedient. Amen. You can know all the stuff in the world, but that doesn't mean you're going to be obedient to it. We're all hypocrites. We can say what, I mean, go back to Facebook, right? It's like 
we can say whatever, but that doesn't mean we actually do it because we can't. Christianity is not a DIY religion. It's not a do-it-yourself religion. We, we can only, believers can only be strong and obedient through God's enabling power. God has to do it within us to do it and obey. So it also pleases God when we are being strengthened by all power according to his glorious might. Being strengthened by all power according to his glorious might. Sometimes I see God only as this amazing father, right? This amazing father who did so much for me. Jesus did so much for me. But what I miss is the caring present right now, not in the past, but present father who is working in me, desiring my complete transformation. This is where God is not through with any of us yet comes from. God isn't just someone who did something. It's someone who did something, is doing something now within us, and will finish it at the end of days, okay? So salvation is more than just a matter of restoring our standing with God. It is a transformation in which God is at work in believers as well as for them. He did stuff for us by sending his son, by setting up all creation to come to this point where a Messiah would take away our sins. But then he doesn't leave us by just giving us, you know, okay, your sins are forgiven. He actually works in us to transform us back to his original design for who we were and who he wants us to be. That's what the Spirit's for. He's given us the Spirit so we can work and keep going towards transforming into the good, good Father and his ideas for who we're supposed to be. So this is amazing news. That is amazing news. Um, His power can strengthen us as we go. His power can strengthen us as we go. He has given us the power of his indwelling spirit to actually work in us to change our desires and to change our motives and to change our lives. And we don't think about that. We think, okay, God gave me the golden ticket in Jesus, and now I'm going to go on my way and try and figure it out. Well, we're setting ourselves up for failure. That's not going to work. He's not only given us a golden ticket, but then he also gives us his spirit as we continue to walk so we can be with him presently in it as we go. Um, And we are being strengthened by God's own power so that we might have great patience and endurance. Endurance is what faith, hope, and love bring into an, uh, into an, I can't say that word, an apparently impossible situation. Patience is is what faith, hope, and love show to an apparently impossible person, okay? You endure situations, you are patient with people, and I say apparently impossible because with God, nothing is possible, impossible. Nothing, no person, no situation is impossible no matter what it looks like on the surface. Um, And this church is a breeding ground, is a breeding ground of opportunities to choose endurance, Impatience. Um, I don't know what else to say about that, but we talk a lot about um, we want to stay at the table. That's kind of our phrase. Uh, we want to stay at the table because in many situations with our Caucasian and African-American people in this church, the situations become apparently impossible to get through. And the only thing that we can do is endure and hope that God actually works it out. Um, 
we, we believe that God has hidden treasures in these situations and in these people. Um, in the, in the what did Jen Verichoff say at the kids' meeting? In the um, conciliation, we're not reconciling our reconciliation because we never reconcile or we never were reconciled. So for the first time, actually reconciling or conciling races. That probably confused everybody. That's okay. Uh, this process of people and races, right? <clears throat> but when we're patient and when we endure resting in God's provided strength, when we run to God when it's impossible, he gives us strength. And it pleases God, not only do we run to him, but to, it pleases God to give us his strength to get through these situations, to reach these people, to concile with these people. Um, which leads us to our fourth and last trait, um, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Joyfully give thanks where gratitude is due, and that is to our Heavenly Father, the one who has created and sustained all things. This is a difficult discipline because it's really easy to give thanks when you're feeling thankful. But it's actually a command, which means it's a choice. So how do you give thanks when you're not thankful? How do you give thanks to God when you're in a pretty crummy situation or dealing with a hard person? Um, gratitude in its deepest sense means to live life as a gift, to be gratefully or receive gratefully. But gratitude, as the gospel speaks about it, embraces all of life, the good and the bad, the joyful and the painful, the holy and the not so holy. You know, the wear and tear of our daily lives chip away at our trust in God because there's always things coming about and it's all chipping away this like trust that we have in God and uh, the appreciation of the gift of life that Jesus Christ has given us. It's constantly beating against that and making it more and more fragile. Um, but you know what's great? Paul, in his foresight, I believe, leaves us with another three things to end this little segment uh, as believers, how we can always, in any circumstance, be thankful for, eternally thankful for. There's three things that even if it's uh, the bad, the painful, and the not so holy, these three things we can always be thankful for. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to, sh uh, to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from dominion of darkness and brought us into the light of the sun he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. What, what are three things we can be thankful for? One, inheritance. Through Christ, we have been made fully legal heirs of what? The kingdom of God. Whatever is Christ in the new kingdom, he shares with us, having full rights to it. He is over everything. And in the new kingdom, he's saying, it's all yours. I don't have this to lord it over you. I have it to share it with you. I want you to have inheritance with me. Um, and he's, the king is willing to share everything with you. Everything he has, everything he will have in the new heavens and earth. He will share it all. And we, as citizens, have full rights to every single thing. There's going to be no wants that are unfilled, no needs that are unmet, because it says this in Revelation. It says, the one who is victorious will inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So we can be thankful, because in Christ, we inherit 
all the things in the new heaven and the new earth. And what does that mean? I don't know. But it's all the things. There's nothing off limits. It's all ours. We have access to it because God loves us and treasures us as his own. And whatever is his is now ours too. So we can always be thankful for that. Two, the second reason to be thankful as a Christian, we were rescued from the harsh rule of darkness. The harsh rule of the power of darkness here. Before Christ, before we knew Christ, we, we basically were in this ethical and theological darkness. We didn't know. We were blinded. And do you know what grows in damp, dark, murky places like that? Mushrooms. That is true. The mushroom of immorality, the mushroom of strife, the mushroom of vengeance, of violence, of oppression, all those mushrooms grow in that darkness. Um, but the, the problem is we were enslaved to the prince of darkness. He had rule over us. Um, all humans have the same common issue. We need to be delivered from a wasted life of sin. We need to be delivered from a wasted life of sin. And we need to be freed from the cosmic powers that keep us captive to the sin because we can't free ourselves. And the good news is that Jesus did that. And when the mob came with swords, uh, with clubs, and with real torches uh, to arrest Jesus in Gethsemane, he declared it was the hour of the power of darkness when violence rules. In Christ, thank God, he tears believers. He tears us away, believers, away from this dark power. And where does he tear us to? He brings us into his kingdom, the one of light and the one that he is ruler over. So God rescues us from the prince of darkness when we place our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So when we change lordships from the prince of darkness to Jesus, the Son of God as Lord, we also change kingdoms because we have a new Lord. So changing lordships means you change kingdoms, okay? So you go from serving this dominion of darkness to coming into this kingdom of light. And God gives us eyes to see that these two Kingdoms are clashing all the time here on earth. They're clashing all the time, right? So in light, no pun intended, of Charlottesville, I mean, I see this clash boil down to these two things. The world goes to war against one another. The church goes to war for one another. This is a big difference. The world, sin and uplifting yourself and esteeming yourself higher than another will ultimately end in war against one another. And when we bring ourselves low under Christ, we, we know the need that not only we have, but everyone else has. So we go to war for one another. We go to war for other people. Um, so what does this mean? I asked uh, on Wednesday or Thursday on the radio show that we do here, I asked Jay and Phil what they would do if white nationalists came to Jacksonville. And it's not a far-fetched idea. Um, it, it really isn't a far-fetched idea. It's definitely possible. In fact, I'm going to tell you this. <clears throat> so today, this morning was a weird morning. I got out of my house. I had to go to Publix at like 7 a.m. to get something for my wife. And as I'm walking out of my house, there's an eerie feeling. I look around. I'm like, what? Something's, something's wrong. 
And then I kind of focus my eyes, and ashes were falling. And I look up in the sky, and it's a clear sky, but then I'm seeing it. There's ashes. I'm holding my hand. Ashes are falling at like something's burning. And I'm like, God, is this a sign for something? Because I don't know what this is. But like I'm looking all over, and there's ashes just falling everywhere, like the world's on fire or something. So I get in my car, and I go to Publix uh, to pick something up. And as I get out of my car, I see a guy backing up in his truck. Now, the guy had a rebel flag on his uh, tinted back window. He had a barrage of bumper stickers. But the one that stood out to me was one of his bumper stickers said, white lives, or, you know, white lives matter more. That's what it said. So it wasn't just white lives matter. It was white lives matter more. And so I just was just thinking like, is he serious? Like, is this, this isn't a joke. This is for real. And so I, I remember I walked up next to the car and I just looked at him and he looked like your typical white nationalist guy. He was old in this beat up truck and he had this huge beard and it was like graying and he just had a snarl on his face and it was only seven in the morning. And I was just thinking like, this isn't, this isn't some distant thing. This is in Arlington. It's not even out backwoods anywhere. It's in Arlington. And he's just driving around. And so I say that because this is actually a, a question. What, what do we do if that happens? And honestly, their answer was one of the last things I expected to hear from them because I was just interested in what they said. And uh, either Jay or Phil, both of them, they said, quote, <clears throat> I'd probably give out water to the Nazis and stand in the way and absorb the violence towards helpless men, women, and children. Just that answer in of itself was like, whoa, where, what, who do you serve? What world are you from? Because their answer wasn't to go to war with the people that are perpetrating evil. Their answer was to go to war for them. Like, I'm going to give them water and I'm going to, I'm going to protect the ones that are going to get hurt. I'm going to absorb that. And I mean, these, these are men of light. These are men of a, a different kingdom that's not going to lift themselves up and be like, you know, la, la, la. They're, they're like, no, I'm, I'm going to war for everybody involved. And um, they're going to war for others' sake. And, and that's what I envision for this church uh, a people that are, are willing to go to war for what is right, what is good, what is holy and pleasing to God for the sake of others, that they may know this wonderful, amazing God. And, and as Christians, we are a people that are made in the image of our Savior. We, we are being refined, more and more transformed into the image of Christ. And Jesus entered this dimension of darkness as a willing participant, as a willing sacrifice for what is right, what is good, what is holy, and what is pleasing to his Father for the sake of everyone. And when we repent of our sins and we acknowledge Jesus, when we acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior, through all the wisdom and understanding that Spirit gives, we will have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is ours to have. In Christ, we have been forgiven, rescued out of darkness, brought into his marvelous light, 
and given our inheritance. What is that? A new life with a new heart, new eyes, new ears, a new community, a new Lord, new access to his spirit, a new eternity with a new relationship to a new father. All of this is given to us. So why do we live our lives striving for something that we already possess? We keep thinking that we don't have something. We need to get it. Jesus gives us everything. He gives it to us. Now we can walk faithfully in it, in the light, in joy, in honor, doing things that are pleasing to him, knowing him more about how amazing he is, and just being empowered and strengthened by his spirit, and just joyfully giving thanks to him in all things. This is an amazing time to be alive as a Christian. It's, it's a terrible time to be alive for the world. There's so much going on, so much divisiveness, so much oppression, so many issues. But as Christians, we get to stand in the gap. We get to be, we get to be there and love people. And so I, I, I want you today that when you walk out the door, you're going to be tempted to devote your time, energy, resources to other things besides Jesus. But nothing gives you the satisfaction. Nothing will give you the joy. Nothing will, will give you just the, the urgency uh, of, and purpose of living as Jesus will. 